The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. And sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. This is The Echo Chamber. I'm your host for today's episode, Arthi Shaw. So today's episode features two guests. We have Joe Assad, who is co-CEO of the relatively new agency, Covert Creative, which recently made an investment in Howler Media, which is um, a publication that focuses on soccer from the U.S. perspective. So we'll talk to Joe about that investment and its implication for content creation and, and ultimately media influence. Also on today's show is Microsoft's head of global communications, Frank Shaw, who will give his point of view on several issues related to corporate reputation. So let's get things started with Joe Assad. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's give our readers um, a bit of backstory about you. So you were at PMK BNC for what is more than a decade, right? I mean, even when it was just BNC. You're making me feel old, but yes, just a little bit over. I think about 11 years, and I started out at BNC. All right, and so when you and when you left there, you were COO, EVP, and you were credited with some of their most notable creative campaigns, including some work for for Audi, correct? Yeah, we started to do a lot more content development and really focusing in kind of comedic digital shorts, although we did some use case videos and things like that for, for other clients. But the ones that got a lot of attention were some of the shorts we did around um, Audi sponsorship of the Emmy um, tele- telecast. Yes, indeed. In fact, that won a, a best in show from the Innovation Sabres. We'll include um, a link to that in the show notes. Um, so then, then it was last year you broke off with a partner to start Covert, um, which you did with some investment from WME IMG. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Lewis K is my partner now. He has uh, been working in, uh, in the field of talent and representation for, for quite a long time. And so he's got you know 40 to 50 clients between he and his team, um, mostly out of Los Angeles and really heavy in the comedy space. Um, it's anywhere from Jimmy Kimmel and Amy Poehler and Tracy Morgan, Will Arnett, and on and on. And um, so we, we kind of took the model of we're going to focus on, on the, you know, creative output and kind of really marry brands and talent together uh, and be able to kind of incubate it on a really smaller level. Uh, we, we did uh, partner with WME to launch, and we were having a conversation with them. We said, you know, look, this happens typically on an individual basis. A lot of the, the deals that I did even – you know, my previous place, Lewis and I did together because we had a, a really good relationship and, and an element of trust. And so we can kind of take this model and kind of, kind of, uh, you know, work on it and, and try to grow it here. You know, even though WME has a huge universe of, of talent uh, that they represent as well. And, and it seemed to appeal enough to them that, you know, we, we got the deal done and we are, you know, within the WME IMG family. So for our listeners who don't know, d- d- WME is, previously known as William Morris Endeavor with Ari Emanuel at the, at the helm. So um, kind of a, a powerhouse in, in talent management, as you, as you mentioned, Joe, um, they, of course they acquired IMG. And so now they're sort of this unique holding group that has heritage and talent management. And then IMG is more from sort of the global sports perspective and the combined entity has like a striking variety of brands, everything from the ultimate fighting championship, Miss universe, e-league drug of five catalyst covert, so, Joe, can you shed some light on sort of what 
the thinking is at WME IMG to have such an eclectic group of brands housed under their umbrella? Well, I, I can say for, you know, from our perspective, one of the things that's been shocking to me is just how accommodating they have been. And really, I've never been in an organization where, you know, collaboration amongst group is, is pretty much, you know, forced, you know, encouraged to force. And, you know, that doesn't always happen. I've been, you know, in companies where it's a big holding company or part of a bigger group when I was at Sports Illustrated or Conde Nast, and typically tends to be kind of every man for himself. Um, and this organization is definitely not that way, which has been really refreshing. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to us because you know, we did, we announced our, our little deal, you know, right prior to them announcing the enormous UFC deal. So we're lucky they paid enough attention to, to kind of get us going. But they moved on to that, you know, enormous kind of ground-shattering deal they did with the UFC. So, so to your point, I mean, it sounds like Covert is sort of following in, in the footsteps that WMEIMG is doing, and that's making investments in media entities. So you recently announced a strategic investment in um, Howler Media, which, again, for our listeners that don't know, it's a glossy quarterly focused on soccer from a U.S. perspective, which, um, which is interesting because we're going into a World Cup year next year, actually. Um, is, it, is it a minority stake, or are you all full owners? Or No, it's a minority stake, but it's a fairly substantial piece of it. So, so tell us a little bit about the backstory. Like, How did this investment come to be? Yeah, I'm, there's a couple things I think for, for me. I, I do believe that there is a future for niche publications, for you know people that do a really produce a really strong product within kind of a single subject where there is a kind of a passionate fan base. You know, um, Lucky Peach, notwithstanding, you know I thought that model was a very strong one, um, and, and you see that there's you know some potential to do some interesting things. I, for us, there's kind of a three pronged approach in terms of you know what we wanted to kind of. And well, first and foremost for us is this allows us to, to take a really creative approach uh, without clients. So if we have great ideas or what we think are great ideas, we can go and execute them. Um, so we're really excited about that. You know, if there's an ability for us to kind of grow um, an audience along the way, there's going to be some applications for us there. There may be some potential for us to generate new business along the way. Uh, but at the very least, you know, what we do really well is something that, you know, Holler didn't really have as part of the organization. The editorial product is really, really well respected, but not really well known by a lot of people. You know, people who know it are, are excited. I'm still surprised everybody I mentioned it to, if they follow soccer and know Holler, the reaction is extremely strong. I had a guy a couple of days ago tell me it was the, the velvet underground of sports magazines. So I kind of like that analogy. Um, but for us, it's what we, we could do is kind of make it feel bigger while we're putting things in place to get it bigger. Um, I don't think anybody would dispute the notion that you know soccer as a global phenomenon is growing and continues to grow. Um, and then you ladder in the fact, like you said, you know there's a World Cup next year. So the things that we can kind of put together, you know, jointly that hopefully will be compelling and help kind of you know differentiate Holler, but also kind of give them a little bit more reach than they've currently had because you know, people that know it love it. But what our goal is to now is to kind of expand that a little bit. So when you said that this investment will allow Covert to execute on some creative ideas that um, you wouldn't be able to do before, you wouldn't be able to do, to do before unless you had a client signed on, can you give me an example of, of something that you would be able to do now that you couldn't do before? Well, I can tell you, I mean, for different reasons maybe, but you know, the video that we put out when we launched it, you know, we, um, we parodied the, the old Sports Illustrated uh, football phone giveaway ads that were kind of ubiquitous on, on cable television 
in the early 90s um, where we found a soccer ball phone and kind of parodied that. Now, we were able to do that because uh, we, we utilized a lot of our talent clients in that. They did that as a favor for us and, and for Lewis, uh, which is, was a priceless um, kind of addition to the overall concept. Um, and if we were doing that on behalf of a big brand, that would be millions and millions of dollars in talent fees. Uh, but because you know, co- uh, we're a startup and Howler is you know, a really small property, it almost kind of took on the feel of a nonprofit. Um, so there's things like that that may be able to kind of happen from time to time. But also, you know, when you're working with bigger brands, you know, ideas kind of start off in one place and end up somewhere else by virtue of, you know, many, many, you know, stakeholders being involved in the process and a lot of kind of forces kind of outside of your control. So this was just a way for us to, you know, we'll operate within the bigger apparatus, you know, obviously, you know, it's a necessity, um, but this allows us to maybe kind of continue to maintain that kind of like startup mentality um, and be, you know, gritty and, and hopefully, you know, nimble and creative and all those things that you kind of aspire to be. So the the parody of the football phone, um, that I think that was actually for our listeners who are old enough to remember, um, there was, as you mentioned, there was a Sports Illustrated that was, um, well, sorry, that was the football phone that was Sports Illustrated. And then you all parody that with the soccer phone. And I mean, the, the, the football phone ad was, was was hilarious enough without it being totally dated but now that um not only is just sort of the concept really funny but just the idea that you would have a phone that you you know have a jack for and and you know that you would be um you'd you know have a dial tone and all of that um is is it's even it's even funnier um when why why did you think that and just going kind of a little bit um stepping back a little bit and thinking about the, the, the strategic reason behind it. So why did you go with a parody um, you know, that, that, you know, that featured a lot of these, a lot of these stars, as you mentioned, I think Jack Black, Will Arnett. Um, is, is Jimmy Kimmel on that or he's not, is he? Hey, we, we actually taped it at his office and we have Guillermo from his show in it. Uh, okay. Okay. So, so, so he's sort of in it by proxy, I guess. Um, yeah. so, so why did you think this was the right way to announce it's funny because when we first started talking to Holler, it's one of the first ideas we had was to do this as, as a video. And I actually thought it was kind of a, a dead on arrival idea because I'm like, how are we ever going to find a soccer ball phone? And the woman in the office um, spent a lot of time on eBay and found the literally, I think, the only soccer ball phone in existence. Once we got that, I'm like, okay, well, now we have to get this deal done because I really want to make this video. At the time, we weren't anticipating much, if any, talent uh, participation. We thought it would be a funny video, maybe get some kind of uh, soccer fans kind of enthusiasm, maybe some kind of trade recognition for covert, and that would be it. Um, and then we started to kind of continue to evolve it and kind of say, you know, maybe we should kind of ask um, and see if we can get some people involved. And, and we were surprised and, you know, extremely grateful that we were able to, to pull that off because I just, it, it takes it to a whole different audience. And you start to get, you know, people magazines of the world and extra, we, you know, we had a 45 second uh, segment on extra TV and things like that, which just takes you to a different audience. It's, it's great to be, you know, in a digitally native space, but then, you know, you're reaching you know, your mom and your grandmother seeing on extra TV. So it just kind of broadens the appeal of the whole thing and kind of, again, goes back to that kind of notion of, of making it feel bigger. Uh, probably for me, you know, Sports Illustrated has a very special place in my heart because one of the things, you know, I probably learned to read with Sports Illustrated, but it was also my second job and the reason I moved to New York was, was working for SI. And it's just a really special time and a special group of people. It was after those ads had run, but we were all very familiar with them. 
Right. I mean, in fact, we will include, well, we'll include a link to the, the, um, the, the parody that the soccer ball phone and the show notes. And we'll also include a link to the original because so after I watched, when I watched the soccer ball parody, it was amazing how it all came rushing back. Like, like just everything about the mannerisms and the way people were like, wait, what? This is amazing. And he calls, um, his wife to say, you won't believe this. I've got a phone. That's also a soccer ball or football. Um, like it all came back. And so I, of course I had to rewatch the, the, the football, um, commercial from what, what year was that? Did that come out? Do you remember? I think the one that we kind of emulated pretty closely was from 1991, but they, they did a number of them. They, were, they had a lot of videos that they used as incentives, and, and another thing we kind of uncovered along the way was that John Slattery from Mad Men appeared in one of these ads. <laughs> Not a football phone. I think it was a video store one, but that was an interesting discovery along the way. John, he, he seems to show up in the most unlikely places, doesn't he? <laughs> so He's very different. before <laughs> the silver hair. Yes. Oh, wow. Um... I'll have to I'll have to look for that commercial now. Um, well, the I mean, so so this is a commercial that's 26 years old. So I'm, I mean, do you hope, do you hope that this parody will get you a new like 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 it'll introduce a new generation of people to this you know relic of infomercials essentially by Sports Illustrated, or is this really intended to, to speak to those Gen Xers and older who who remember? Oh, yeah, that, that was a topic that we kind of discussed a lot uh, on our end before we kind of put the video out. We knew there would be an audience that existed, um, and probably a lot of members of the media, um, who had kind of re- who would remember it, you know, people of a certain age. But we also kind of felt like we had enough of a, of a comedic hook with, you know, like you mentioned before, the absurdity of the phone itself and this, like, 20-foot cord attached to it, not to mention that you had to plug it into the wall. You know, the nostalgic element of that and the absurdist kind of comedic end we thought may have a chance to kind of resonate with people even if they didn't remember the original videos and you know we were we were pleasantly um you know validated with that as well as you know even even so the, the people that we pitched or that we seated it with that had no idea what the, the the original video was still kind of found, found humor and, and and either posted or shared or wrote about it so uh it, you know it worked out from that end too so what what message or, or what are you trying to tell i guess the the marketplace at large about covert's approach to creative through through something like an example like this parody video, because I think you all have done a few parody videos as well. I think we um, there was there were some others. I mean, obviously the the one that you the ones you did when you were at PMK, but um, but the, but there's some others that you and I even have talked about that you all have worked on. Yeah, I mean, I think for us. Um what I, what I think the takeaway can be is, you know, we've probably produced four to six of these now that generate a lot of um, organic attention. We drive a lot. We, we generate a lot of media coverage. I mean, people try to, you know, they create ads around Super Bowl knowing that it's going to def- definitely get attention and get media coverage and get shares. And so we've had a lot of success with that. And, you know, hopefully we can kind of continue to do more of those. You know, the, the, the majority have kind of landed in the, the comedic realm, but they've all been very different in, in, in variety of ways you know uh, the one you kind of alluded to i think is barely legal pawn it's mm-hmm. and obviously the pawn shop shows were were kind of a moment in time uh, you know and that one was really driven by you know the cast of you know the guys from breaking bad and julie dreyfus and kind of the overall script was you know extremely funny and you know we had a lot of latitude to i think make a seven minute video at the time when you know to be People say, you know, everyone's attention span is so short it has to be a matter of seconds. I, you know, I think, you know, good good creative people will stick with um, as long as you give them a reason to. But I think we've had a lot of success in making things that kind of get attention beyond uh, paid support. I, I don't think that there has been one of these that we've made, you know, either – 
prior or now where we put any paid to all of the you know views and all of the sharing has been you know completely organic so that's something you know we're really proud of that we're you know making kind of quasi ads um, that people want to kind of engage with and share or talk about which which has been really nice so let's talk for a moment then about your model because you know traditionally it was the the ad firm that came up with this with you know the the creative I, I guess and then they would give that and you know, whether you know there was of course traditionally there would be a paid buy behind it and then but they would go to the PR firm and say hey can you kind of raise the profile of this of this creative that we put out these days you're seeing more and more like like what you're saying is where sometimes the ad firm does not put paid behind it they they just kind of expect the the buzz and reality to, to kind of create a life of its own but you all are are doing both like you are doing the creative and you're and you're getting the buzz around it yeah, and I don't think it's that strange if you, you know, the, the flip side of that is that, you know, more and more over the past couple of years, you know, ad agencies are pitching stunt ideas. You know, they're pitching experiential ideas. I think really everybody's doing a little bit of everything and, you know, some do it better than others. Um, but the, the, the gray area, you know, is real. Um, you know, while each agency may have a, a discipline or two that they specialize in, I think there's many that are exclusive to that one specific thing anymore. I think you have to be able to do different things at different times. And for us, you know, when, when we can take a lead creatively, we, we love that. And if we need to kind of play a support role, you know, we're, we're happy to do that as well. It's just, you know, whatever's needed at the time is totally fine. The, the gray area is real. I think that should be like a t-shirt that people wear at hand <laughs> or something. Um, so are, do you expect that Covert's going to move more into the paid area as well and start building that expertise also? I mean, I would like us to continue to have, you know, creative opportunities and, and, and assignments, you know, or, you know, if we, if we have to, we'll, we'll buy more magazines and, and do other things, um, you know, because that's something we get excited to do. And I think it allows us to also um, kind of tap into to some of our talent clients as well. Even when we launched, it was really kind of, you know, uh, really heartening for, for both Lewis and I at the time, um, you know, the, where a couple of his clients have come forward and said, look, you know, we'll you know, we'll support you. Uh, and it wasn't just lip service. It was also part of it. It's like, you know, we want to be at the table earlier. Let's collaborate. You know, Adam Pally's in the video and he couldn't wait to kind of set up a meeting back in New York because he wanted to talk about some of our other clients and some work we could do together. So, you know, this, this, this notion of collaboration, a lot of places talk about it, but I think, you know, the bigger you get, the harder that is. And I go back to that kind of story I told earlier about how, you know, Lewis and I have the relationship and trust and kind of the complementary nature of the way we work allows us to do this and then we have projects like the one we're talking about now and the talent clients are excited about it and, and want to kind of take it from there and see what else can we do together versus the traditional model which is uh, we need a celebrity A, here's X amount of money, go see who you can get and here's a list of 10 people that are approved um, and we want to try to do it, you know, basically the opposite of that and kind of work together with talent when it's appropriate and, and kind of come up with ideas that maybe nobody else can. Yes, indeed, and um, I, I like that you gave um, Adam uh, Pally a, a shout out because I forgot to mention him, and he was actually a highlight for me when I when I watched that video. He's um he's pretty funny. So he was hysterical on set too. We kind of knew at that point when he was the one that had everybody laughing the entire time. Yeah, that 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 does not surprise me. Um, <laughs> so so then a question for for covert. I mean, is there? I mean, do you, you know, your heritage is, is in, you know, you know, yours is, is in a lot of sort of creative content development, um, you know, working even with, you know, working with brands and, um, Lewis is, is in, in talent management. Is there a, 
is there a certain moniker that or a description for what you do that, that you gravitate towards? Or do you think in this new world, it doesn't really matter? I mean, you're, you're, you're producing creative that could be, you know, that could be creative that you're planning on building buzz around that could be creative that you're going to do a paid buy around. You could step back and focus on the buzz and not so much on the creative that, that in this day and age, a lot of some of those descriptions are outdated. Yeah, I think so. I think they can be limiting. I think what has served us well is that we are very, very difficult critics. We're very discerning in everything. And sometimes, you know, that helps in terms of a traditional PR approach where you know you have to kind of convince maybe a skeptical media person to kind of embrace or kind of be engaged with what you're trying to pitch them. But also uh, it helps us when we're trying to concept things is that we kind of, we don't necessarily fall in love with our own ideas. Like I think a lot of people, like it's easy to fall into that. We really encourage, you know, everybody here to almost tell us why it's wrong. Let's figure out what, what's wrong with it first and then fix it or move on versus kind of falling in love um, right away because I think that happens a lot and then you know everything kind of can emanate from there. I, I was having a conversation earlier with, with somebody in a different agency just where so often um, you know creative will come up with a great tagline and they'll try to push the entire you know rest of the marketing apparatus to 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 execute or ideate around a single tagline that may or may not be around for very long. So I think those kind of things kind of le le lead to a disservice for, for organizations and for kind of marketing groups. Um, and so I think like this putting things through a rigorous process internally is a really important thing too. So, you know, we, we talked about the fact that there's a, there was a world cup next year. So what opportunities does, does this Haller investment present to both covert and also your, your clients that you have now that you, you know, in a World Cup year um, that you wouldn't have had otherwise? Well, I think, you know, simply stated, it gives us a reason to talk to people, you know, people who are in and around the space, uh, the soccer space, it's a, it singularly is, is a reason to have that conversation. Um, but, but additionally, you know, people, the ages that we have a lot of experience, it, it, I can't say that it's like a, a soccer organization because it's not, but we've done a lot of things with past brands, whether it's through friendlies of Bayern Munich coming to the United States and putting on, um, you know, a soccer match for influencers and legends that we did a couple of years ago um, or some other activations that we've done in the past. Um, it allows us to kind of put some creative ideas forward, whether it's in the space of content, whether it's uh, experiential. There's just, it's kind of an open terrain for us and, and that really for me has been our um, the biggest kind of uh, guardrails I'm trying to put on this there's so much we can do I don't want to be distracted by trying to do 20 things at once we need to kind of refine them uh, so that we're not trying to do, solve every single thing um, right out of the gate but kind of do things that kind of build on each other but obviously we're, we're you know the North Star in the short term for us is the World Cup and kind of putting forward some things that might be interesting and where we can get some brand engagement along the way. So Joe um, were you at were you at the at uh, Cannes this year? I was not. Uh, so because my, my next takeaway was going, my, my next question was going to be, what were your key takeaways from Cannes? But instead I'll ask you, why did you not go this year? <laughs> I'm not big on the industry stuff. I kind of just do the work and let it kind of lay where it is. I've, I, I've kind of dipped my toe in and out. I'm sure I will again. I just kind of, I, I'm judicious with that. Uh, well, good. That, that was a good uh, diplomatic answer there. Um, try. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Joe, this is great talking to you about this, and we will certainly, I'm sure, chat again about some of these interesting things that Covert's doing. Perfect. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
So if you like the echo chamber, then you probably like reflecting on PR and marketing as much as we at the Homes Report do, which means you ought to be listening to Hacks and Flax, which is produced by March Communications. To tell you a bit more about it, we have Manny Vega here. Welcome, Manny. Hey, thanks, Arthur. Great, great to be here. So can you tell our listeners what you do on Hacks and Flax? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we like to say that Hacks and Flax, uh, we cover PR, marketing, uh, media, and communications. Uh, and, and it's really, you know, this is a podcast for uh, PR professionals, marketers, um, you know, folks in this industry. Whether you're working in an agency or in-house, um, it's just meant to be, you know, interesting conversations with interesting people, experts, uh, company founders, uh, even journalists, that sort of thing. Um just to, to cover, you know, big topics in the industry, provide advice, provide different perspectives uh, to help you do your job better. So I like Hacks and Flags because you all bring on interesting guests that aren't always PR people, but their work always has some intersection with reputation. Like you, like you said, you've had journalists, founders, along with your own colleagues on the show. Yeah, that's definitely um, that's a big goal for us. We try to you know have as, as unique mix of guests as possible. Um, I think what we found is, you know, different uh, different people from different walks of life, uh, you know, have a lot to share in, in terms of communications and marketing and, and PR. Uh, so, for example, we have interviewed journalists before on sort of the big stories that they've covered. Uh, we've done, you know, also kind of how to pitch to a journalist, those type of topics, uh, which obviously are, are more important for the PR side. Um, but then we'll do, you know, roundtable discussions with, with folks both uh, within our own agency or outside the agency about just the challenges of, of uh, PR and marketing or, or just on big issues like, um, you know, the fake news uh, topic that's been going around for quite a while. We did a podcast on that. Um, but we really like having on, you know, founders and people from different different industries. Uh, we did a series on uh, of nonprofit interviews as well because we thought, you know, that could add a good amount of color and a good amount of information that would help um you know, marketers and NPR professionals. Yeah, I know there's a there's a good mix of sort of tactical tips and tricks, as well as looking at sort of the more strategic, higher level issues. So we, of course, syndicate Hacks and Flax here on the Echo Chamber. So if you're subscribed to the Echo Chamber, you probably get updates every time we syndicate a new episode of Hacks and Flax. But of course, we can't we can't publish all of the episodes um, uh, on the Echo Chamber. So, Manny, where else can people find you? Yeah, so the, the best place, uh, you know, we do publish new episodes uh, to the March Communications blog. So if you visit marchcoms.com, that's marchcoms.com, uh, you can find our blog and we'll, we'll have new episodes up there. Uh, but really the easiest way is, is just by checking out any of the, the podcasting services out there. So Apple Podcasts, for example, um, or Google Play, uh, we are on all of those services. So if you subscribe, if you, you, know, you find Hacks and Flax on that service and subscribe, uh, then you get the latest episode just delivered straight to your device. So uh, that's the easiest way to get an alert every time we come out with a new episode. Well, thanks, Manny. And listeners, it's called Hacks and Flex. It's produced by the tech PR agency March Communications. And if you like geeking out on PR and communications, I highly recommend that you tune it in. Now back to today's echo chamber. Let's bring Frank Shaw on the show to talk corporate reputation. Welcome to the show, Frank. Thanks, Arty. It's great to be here. Frank, let's first talk about brands and social issues and what your perspective is on whether brands should be taking a stand on on social issues or even political issues. I mean, as we saw at this year's Super Bowl, um, many of the ads were, were quite politically charged. But beyond that, I mean, there's been increasing amounts of research that has shown that consumers um, 
especially younger consumers, do expect and in many cases reward brands for taking a bold stance on some kind of social issue or, or to have some sort of bigger purpose. What are your thoughts on whether brands need to step into that arena, arena or how much do they need to step into that arena? I think the, I would agree with the idea, with the, the basic belief that you know, people increasingly of all ages really want to make sure that, that, uh, that what they do aligns with the companies that they are doing business with. And it's not necessarily a totally new thing, but it's a lot easier now to have visibility into what companies are and are not doing and what they are and are not saying. And that's where I think social media has played you know, a relatively large role in, in um, increasing that kind of transparency. But the, the key thing is, you know, do you have standing to have a, a point of view? And, and if so, where? And that's, that's where it gets complicated. I mean, if you like step outside of the tech arena, if you have a, you know, a company um, that is you know, manufacturing tires, just to pick a random example, should they be expected to have a point of view on every policy decision, every social issue, you know, everything that, that becomes the news of the day? And I think that that's a pretty high burden uh, to, to put on any company. And so you have to think about, if you're a values-driven company and you've articulated your mission, then people should generally have a sense of how you would uh, behave uh, and what what you would support. Uh, and I think that's a high-order bit is making sure people understand what it is that you stand for. Yeah, no, it, it almost seems like more than than taking stances on, on on specific you know pieces of policy, which which in, you know in some cases you know, as we saw with like the you know the the immigration stuff recently, a lot of uh, tech firm uh, tech companies in particular took a stand but but it seems like in more than more than taking a point of view on specific pieces of, of legislation or policy um there's this this like this general feeling of like i think these people you know approach the world the same way i do or i think this company generally um thinks the way i do you know you, you know i mean it seems to be more um a, a little less specific and a little bit more this general sense of like i feel like this company aligns with me I think I would probably pivot it a little bit. I would say, I think it's not that they necessarily align or agree with 100% of anybody, because that's not going to be possible. But that I trust this company. I trust this company. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand why they make decisions. I mean, because look, look at us. I mean, we have uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of customers. And the chance that we are going to be in perfect alignment with all of those people, regardless of, of where they are in the world and what their positions might be, it's just, it's just slim to none. And so instead of saying, you know, that we want to be perfectly aligned, we want them to feel like they can trust us uh, and that we are clear. Well, and I think that's, that's the piece to really drive towards because you're not going to ever get to 100% uh, alignment with people, even like you look at the United States, there's, there's relatively large splits in terms of beliefs across the, the political ecosystem mm -hmm. just on its own. Mm -hmm. Now that's a good, that's a good way to put it is, is, is trust. They, so when, when I was, when I was thinking about it more generally, I, I thought about with, um, this is, this is, uh, is example's quite old now, but 
you know, there was a time where everybody, you know, was, there were, were not, there was a time where there was a, there was some portion of the population that, that really refused to go to Walmart. And during that time, I remember a lot of people were saying, well, you know, I, I just go to Target. I only shop, I only do that sort of shopping at Target. And then that conversation was usually followed by, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to research, you know, Target's practices because I don't want to know, I, I, I don't want to know because that would leave me with nowhere to shop. And, and, you know, and there was a sense that, that, you know, generally Target just seemed like a better, like they had some better practices at the time than Walmart. But, but I, but I, but it was from a corporate values perspective. I just remember thinking when people would say that, how interesting that was that, you know, there were, there were two options and, and people really didn't want to know, they didn't want to dig that much deeper with Target. I don't know that they, you know, whether that was, where they just intrinsically felt like they could trust Target more or, um, or whether it was just sort of the next viable alternative. Yeah, and, and there's always some dissonance there because you you might actually, there was a, I was just reading last night, there was an article in, the, I think it was the current issue of The New Yorker about the politics of barbecue in South Carolina. And, uh, you know, through the lens of a specific barbecue chain and their CEO who, like, many, many years ago had been relatively conservative and as a result, he lost business and... Uh, it was, you know, the same sort of discussion that we're having today, only from 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, and, you know, he made decisions that made some of his customers say, I'm not going to go there anymore. But some of the customers that they talked to said, wow, I know I shouldn't go here, but I love the barbecue. So I'm going to check my uh, concerns at the door and I'm going to enjoy the food. And that is the kind of cognitive dissonance that people will feel in a lot of places. I like this product. I like this company. I'm not sure I'm completely aligned with their values, but here we are. That, that well, exactly. And when we've seen that play out right again and again, I mean, I just I'm thinking of now like Chick Fil A. That um, you know, in the, in the Bay Area here, there's there's a few locations, and I you know the number of times I'll hear someone say, you know, I really. Don't know if I agree with the politics of Chick Fil A, but gosh, they make a really good chicken sandwich, so I go there anyway. Exactly. <laughs> so. Right, and so that you know, as it is, like, what do you what do you want from? It's hard to be the sort of the moral police for every single decision that you make, but you should have some general standards and at least be thoughtful about it. I think that's generally a good thing. So let's let's talk a little bit about about fake news, sort of sticking with this topical theme, um, and in particular, what it means for technology, and as, and as we all know. Fake news itself isn't new, but its reach has sort of been accelerated with social media. We, we saw the impact of that in, in the 2016 election. So I'm curious sort of, you know, how you've seen sort of fake news manifest within the tech sector and, and what precautions do you have in place for when Microsoft's a, a target of fake news? Well, I think it's interesting. Fake news is sort of a, uh, it's a very much of a buzzy topic. The, the way I tend to look at it is it, uh, fake news is a, uh, output of what the economist calls living in a post-truth or a post-fact world. And there's many ways that it shows up, one of, one of which you know, is currently sort of the topic of the day, which is uh, uh, sort of this fake, fake news con concept. But the, the way I tend to look at it is that in a, uh, in a world where there is a lot of information and misinformation out there, you know, what is the changing role of corporate communications? What do you have to do to be to be ready for this? Uh, and I think there's a there's a couple of things. You know, first, you just you have to have the capacity to tell your own story. 
through whatever channels are existent in the world at that time. So the, whether it's social media, whether it's your own news channel, whether it's YouTube, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or, or Facebook or whatever um, channel that people are receiving information, you really need to think about having the capacity to tell your story directly to your consumers, to your customers uh, on, that, uh, on that channel. That helps tremendously when you're dealing with uh, rumors uh, or um, inaccurate coverage, or if you're, you know, really the target of, um, you know, disinformation campaign. So having that channel open is is critical. Having a channel available. But the second piece of it is, uh, you know, you really have to have trust. Because if you don't have trust, and even if you have the channel, people won't believe you. You know, one thing one thing I noticed is um, going back to, to to fake news is is I noticed that the April Fools' news um, releases were a little were much more low key this year. Um, and I don't know, was that because and and, and this is something that the te- that a lot of tech companies in years past have participated in. Um, do you think that was because April Fools' fell on a Saturday, or was there? Or, or do you think people are generally more cautious because of this, you know, fake news is sort of weighing so heavily on everyone's minds? I think uh, it's probably a little bit of a uh, little bit of both. I would just say for us, I mean, we've moved away from trying to, to do a ton of things on, on April Fool's, basically because it's hard to be funny. Yeah. And so the difference between being you know really funny and being a laughing stock is very small. And so, yep. uh, while we have some hilarious people here, we also have some people who are probably not as funny as they think they are. And so, let's just be careful about how we uh, how we do that. And so, for the last couple of years, we sort of encouraged people to be thoughtful in how they approach uh, uh, April Fools. That that is that is probably that is probably wise. If anything, I've, I've saw I've seen a lot of fatigue around around sort of brands, like you said, you know, trying to be, trying to be jokesters and it usually, uh, falling flat or, 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 or worse. Um, so. The bar is high. It is. is. I mean, you know, boy, in the world today, there are so many funny people just on their own and there's some great satirical sites out there and, you know, it's hard uh, for us to think about how we're going to universally compete with that across all the different products that we make. Right, right. You sort of leave that, leave that to the experts. Um, so, so let, let's, let's revisit sort of corporate storytelling, which you, which you've touched on and, and you and I have talked about it in the past and how, you know, good storytelling, no matter whether it's brand storytelling, um, or, or any other medium, you know, should follow some of the basic tenets of storytelling, like the hero's journey. And I'm wondering, you know, if that's still your, your approach at Microsoft and if so, sort of, how do you, how do you apply things like that to, to, to corporate storytelling, um, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, you know, first of all, at the heart of every great story actually is interesting things. And so making sure before, before you start putting together archetypes and journeys and things like that, really looking at the story itself is important. What are you, what are you trying to say? And doing the work to understand, like, what have we done? Where, where is the tension? Where do we start from? 
that's important. So that's the heart of storytelling is actually getting getting close to the center, understanding deeply what what is happening. And and a lot of times in corporate communications, it's possible to get pushed away from that. Um, and and you look and say, okay, here's the here's a spec sheet. Now go do some storytelling against it. Or here's a new product and here's a set of features. Like let's figure out how to do some storytelling. And that's difficult because you don't have the raw content to look at. So get close to the content and roll around in it. Talk to customers, talk to engineers, talk to salespeople, you know, look at the competitive dynamic in the industry. And then once you have all that, then you can think about where is the story that, that we want to tell and what are the aspects of it that are really interesting. And of course, the hero's journey and you know the uh, the Joseph Campbell archetypes continue to be quite powerful. And so, looking at those and, and thinking through what is appropriate uh, makes sense. But you can't use it as sort of a universal hammer and beat everything into that uh, into that particular shape. I'm curious, what are the narratives that are really resonating with the media right now? I mean, I've heard from 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 other people that. You know, because politics seems to continue to 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 dominate the news cycle, it's it's difficult to fish through. And so, so which what are the narratives that are that are working right now? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple. One is one is uh, digital transformation or disruption uh, across these different industries. That is something that really resonates because people are looking at that and they see it taking place, whether it's healthcare or automotive uh, or retail. So that piece of things is something that the media is quite interested in. Is I'm, I'm assuming the bar has been raised on that a little bit, though, because it, it seemed like three, four years ago, everybody was disrupting something and... And some of those things panned out, some of them didn't, and I would. it almost seems like now there, there's probably a little bit more skepticism when somebody comes to them and says, hey, I'm, I'm the Uber for earrings and I'm going to disrupt, I'm going to disrupt the earring sector forever. Right. <laughs> but it's gotten to the real world now. Mm -hmm. So you look at uh, uh, a company like ThyssenKrupp, which makes all sorts of things from submarines to elevators. And in their elevator business, they now they now operate a software as a service where they can do predictive maintenance on their elevators. Uh, and as a result of some of the sensors that have been put into place and their ability to analyze it, they operate completely differently today. That's real. That's real transformation. Hmm. Yep. Uh, yeah, I think that's key. I think you you nailed it. Is is real real transformation? I, I suppose is what is the stories that are that are working right now. Um, but before we before we wrap up, there were a couple of things I wanted to make sure I had a chance to ask you about. And and one is 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 agencies. Um, I know Microsoft works with a lot of agencies. So I'm I'm curious what your what your advice would be in terms of what makes for a good agency partner, and and what are some of the things that 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 or I guess for lack of better word, pet peeves that, that agencies do? I, I think that the agency relationship 
uh, and the kind of performance you get from your agencies really starts with being clear on what you're looking for and, and the outcomes that you want and the role you want the agency to play. So the clearer that the clients are about that, the better the entire process works. What about in terms of, I mean, is there, is there anything that, that agencies have a tendency to do that, that are, that's, that's really annoying or, or, or detrimental for, for, for clients? I mean, and you've been on both sides, right? I mean, Frank, I mean, you spent a, a very long time, um, in how, I mean, at the, in the agency side before you came in house to Microsoft. So, so you've been on both sides. So I, so taking that into account, I mean, yes, I mean, you, the client should be very, very clear about what they're looking for. But is there is there anything in particular that you or, or that you think needs to change just generally about the agency model that would make it that would make for a, a better relationship? Well, we're lucky in that we have great we have a great set of agencies that we work with in many cases that we've worked with for a long time, uh, and so we have regular dialogue about uh, expectations on both sides. I think the the, the piece that you always have to calibrate against it. You go outside the company for perspective, and you need to get it in the right um, magnitude. Because sometimes you really want perspective and fresh ideas and thinking, and sometimes you just want to do something. And so having an agency be clear about what role they're playing at that moment makes like life a lot easier. It, you you hit on something that that I think is is worth noting is you pointed out that you you have long standing agency relationships and because of that you've been able to sort of you know fine tune communications and and kind of reach a certain level where where it seems like you all are, are are well aligned and and that's worth thinking about because I know there is this sense especially and I've seen it in the tech sector quite a bit this idea that you need to change your agency partners often to kind of keep everybody on their toes and to, and to get some fresh ideas. And, um, and so, so you just advocated for the, the upside of, of having a longstanding relationship, I guess. Yeah, I think you have to look at these things on a regular basis and make sure that both parties are getting what they need uh, and are having a chance to be valued and have impact. Uh, so like having been on the receiving end of RFPs and agency reviews and having driven some of those, I, I think that uh, the key is if you're going to do a review or ask for something else, you have to be really clear about the why. Is it a, a non-performance issue? Uh, is it a capabilities issue? Have there been a strategic shift in the business? Uh, and that that's going to drive some sort of review. Uh, and many times what happens is it's a client somewhere, it's like, I just feel like I have to do something different. And I'm just going to throw a bunch of stuff out there and I hope somebody will come back with something interesting, new, fresh. And I don't think that's the best way of getting that. 
I know you have a, I know you have to jump off in just a moment. So, so maybe, maybe we can end on, on, uh, on a future looking question. I mean, what, I'm curious about how you, what you think the sort of the CCO of the future will look like, like what will, you know, what would your job look like five or 10 years from now? What, what would be the skill sets? What would be the responsibilities that, that would be different than, than, than today? That's a big question. Uh, <laughs> I think in general, the role of the chief communications officer will continue to become more complicated because of the number of inputs that you receive, the more opportunities you have to tell your story externally, and the need to coordinate really tightly with stakeholders across the business. What about in terms of, of just hiring in, in, in general, like, you know, so, you know, tomorrow's PR professionals, how is that profile continue? I mean, obviously we've seen this change happen at, at a really fast pace over the last seven or so years, but now looking to the future, like, you know, when, when you're hiring for your team, is there any, you know, what are the new skills that you're looking for that maybe you weren't even looking for 18 months ago? I was at an event uh, recently where we were talking about this and, and we were having a debate around do you hire a specialist or a generalist? Uh, you know, in, in, in sports analogy, do you get the best athlete or do you get the best person at a position? Mm-hmm. For larger companies, I think you need both. So we are hiring for skills that we might not have looked like at before. Uh, we need people who are good at data and analytics. We need people who are great visual storytellers. Uh, you know, we need uh, people who are up to date across the social spectrum. So those are those are specialist skills. But we also need to hire great communicators. And, you know, that includes the ability to ask the right question, the ability to put things in context, to take complicated topics and simplify them and then make them interesting, and the ability to communicate clearly across a variety of mediums. And so those things haven't changed. The tactics around them continue to change and evolve, and you will want people who are great at those. Well, Frank, it was great to have you on the show today, and it would be great to, to have you back and, and to continue this conversation at some point. It's always good to catch up, and it's a fascinating time to be in communications, that's for sure. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Very true. All right, well, thank you, Frank. Thank you. We'll talk soon. And that concludes another episode of The Echo Chamber. I would like to thank our guests, Joe Assad and Frank Shaw, for joining us today. I would also like to thank our production team at Marketeers, and I would also like to thank our sponsor, March Communications, and we will be back soon with another episode. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers.
Sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people.